0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: I'm Laura Stark. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University. I had the great pleasure to talk with Mary Augusta Brazelton about her important new book, Mass Vaccination: Citizens' Bodies and State Power in Modern China. Brazelton is at University of Cambridge in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science. She's senior lecturer in global studies of science, technology, and medicine. At Cambridge, Brazelton is also an affiliated lecturer in East Asian Studies at the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies, as well as a trustee and research fellow of the Needham Research Institute. Beyond Cambridge, Brazelton is a council member of the British Association of Chinese Studies and the British Society for the History of Science. She earned her PhD in History of Medicine at Yale. Thank you for listening to the conversation. It was a collaborative interview among the author, myself, and students in my course, American Medicine in the World. So, um, thanks, Mary, for being here. And your book, Mass Vaccination, could hardly be more timely. So, we're talking and recording just to give context on April 27th, 2021, in the midst of a, a continuing ongoing um, global pandemic and in the midst of the, this great biopolitical effort of mass vaccination. And so, your book, Mass Vaccination, features China. Um, sort of really centrally, but instead of being sort of the um, the, the quote unquote origins or sort of the, the source, the problem in, in the story of uh, mass vaccination and the need for it worldwide. China um, in this book is the center of this remarkably successful public health uh, system in which the um, Uh, vaccination itself was really the centerpiece. And so in doing that, what's really interesting for folks um, who study sort of social and critical studies of medicine is that it gives a really surprising answer to this classic question or this classic expectation, which is in the context of biopolitics, so uh, sort of control over life there is an expectation that um, nation states would go for things like sanitation and um, behavioral change to promote better health because that puts people in constant contact with a governing authority, a colonizer, for example. But what you show is that actually, no, the other possibility, one of the other big possibilities, which is vaccination. Uh, was actually a centerpiece of the Chinese public health system, even though vaccination is something that requires extremely little contact um, and extremely little biopolitical control over people in a, in a long-term sort of way. So this is all to say that both conceptually and both in terms of current events, this is just a really um, remarkable book. So could you start us off by telling us what we need to know about the political history of China, because war is a really important context for this book, and it covers a century. So uh, fill us in. Sure.
0: Well, thank you uh, for that um, really uh, helpful introduction. And I mean, I think that if I were to go full on and give you all the breakdown of 20th century Chinese history, we could be here for a really long time. Um, And I remember when I was in graduate school, having a professor say, um, you know, if you want the most complicated period in modern Chinese history, look at start at the year 1927 um, because it is one of the most challenging periods in some ways to teach. Um, so I don't want to do that. So I'll just give you as quick uh, of, a, of a kind of potted history as I can. Um, But really it is, in many ways, a century of war and revolution that we're talking about when we talk about 20th century China. Um, This is a century that begins for China with the final years of the last imperial dynasty, the Qing, um, which ends in 1911. And after that, we see several decades in the mid 20th century for China of war and civil and international conflict of various kinds. So in 1911, the Qing Dynasty falls, Um, that is followed by the establishment of a Republic of China, a new Republican state. At the same time, that government becomes beset by all kinds of problems pretty quickly. uh, And the result is a period of relatively weak central rule in China. Instead, we have regional warlords coming to the fore, establishing kind of provincial areas of military rule uh, in a way that's um, perhaps more fragmented than we uh, might see in other periods. Um, Fast forward through a lot of really complicated history, often historians break down this time into segments that, for example, break at the year 1927, that really complicated year that I mentioned. That's in part because it's in 1927 that we see the emergence and consolidation of a new political party, not the Communist Party, but the Nationalist Party, the Guonendang, which uh, establishes a more consolidated state in China. So, When we come to things like the outbreak of World War II in China, which happens in 1937, when Japan invades, it's the nationalist state that is considered the primary government of China by international bodies, Chiang Kai-shek is at its head. Um, And so we have this period in the mid 20th century where it's the nationalist party that's ruling many parts of China, but not all. Um, There are still regional warlords, especially in the kind of borderlands of what we think of now as China. Um, And so during World War II, that crucial period between 1937 and 45, we see Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Party fighting the Japanese who have invaded and occupied a good deal of Eastern and Northern China. But of course, they aren't alone. There's another political party in China as well, the Chinese Communist Party, established in uh, 1921. Uh, And uh, again, there's a lot of really complicated history about the relationships between the various political parties in China. Suffice it to say that the Second World War really brings together these two major political parties, the Nationalists and the Communists. They form an uneasy alliance uh, to fight the Japanese, Um, that immediately dissolves after 1945, uh, when the Japanese withdraw. Um, Thus follows a civil war between 1945 and 49, the Communists win, and as we all know, um, the Chinese Communist Party in 1949 established um, the People's Republic of China on uh, the mainland. And I say the mainland because, uh, as many of you probably already know, the Nationalist Party and the government that it ran um, actually moved, it fled, uh, what we think of now as mainland China, and moved to the island of Taiwan, um, which has its own really complicated history. Um, But suffice it to say that at that point in 1949, it was a province, an island province of China. Um, So as you know, today, the island of Taiwan is still Um, autonomous in practical ways and and that is the result of this history essentially. Um, So after 1949, we see this split where the Republic of China is now on the island of Taiwan, the People's Republic of China with the communist party is now on mainland China, both claim to be the primary and legitimate rulers of one China that includes both the mainland and the island of Taiwan. And that is the situation until uh, the late 20th century. So I think that's maybe plenty, and I've probably already gone on for far too long, um, just kind of running through um, those basics. Again, there's so much more to say about every decade and even year here, but maybe I'll leave it there for the time being.
1: This is really helpful. So to um, to to start back at the moment of, um, sort of very loose consolidation of the nationalist party. So ballpark of the 1920s um, into the 1930s. Um, one of the really central inflection points of the book is when. The scientists and the the clinical researchers from China's National Epidemic Prevention Bureau um, have to flee sort of these the coastal East Coast cities, um, which is where all the science and medicine action had been going on, and also all the political leadership in nineteen thirty seven with um, the Japanese occupation and invasion. So in 1937, what you're showing us is that this group of of, um, scientists and the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau itself actually picks up and moves um, to this extremely mountainous, uh, lots of big rivers, huge expansive space um, in the uh, the province of Yunnan in the southwest. And when when folks arrive there, there actually is something like a medical infrastructure, surprisingly, um, in place. And also, there are all of these sort of geographic conditions that make this um, this borderland spot where uh, China starts to do very intensive vaccine research. Um, but that spot really, really matters for this story. So could you um, sort of fill us in, sort of describe a bit what that geography was like around 1937 and why it mattered politically, like particularly for the ways in which the, the region was able, was able to, or was, uh, was linked to Uh, French Indochina and France with uh, the UK and its uh, sort of Indian subcontinent work and the nations, for example. So tell us a bit about that particular place where the refugee scientists landed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is really a subject uh, near to my heart since I spent a fair amount of time uh, in Yunnan province in Kunming uh, in its capital doing research. Um, And in some ways, that's the story of understanding why Yunnan mattered, why it was important to this wartime research that microbiologists were doing. That was a big part of what drew me to the topic of vaccines, uh, in a certain sense. So, uh, as 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 we were just saying, we have this um, we have a central state, right? In the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. Um, even uh, after the Nationalist Party consolidates power and yet that central state still doesn't necessarily have a ton of um, control over uh, more borderland areas and certainly the Southwest would count as a kind of borderland uh, for what we think of sometimes as China proper Um, so the areas where we have those big eastern coastal cities for example Uh, in Central and Eastern China. So Southwest China had been a kind of borderland for a long time. And with that, it had a certain kind of history um, that was present in the minds of a lot of the researchers who would have come to Kunming in Yunnan province in 1937 when the war broke out. Um, So they would have thought of it as a kind of hinterland really. Um, and the term in Chinese for this area was actually the Da Hofan, the Great Rear, if you translate it literally. Um, and so um, this was an area that wasn't, that was uh, more under the control of various warlords that ruled Yunnan province during the time. Um, but it was also an area that was hard to get to. Um, and that shaped its history both in the long durée and in the short term. It was remote. It was uh, quite difficult uh, just physically to travel there from central China. Um, By contrast, it was easier in some ways to get to Yunnan, to this area um, from the south, from what was then uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, French Indochina, especially after the French uh, built railways up into that area um, because they were quite interested in establishing a sphere of colonial influence in that part of China. Um, so we see then this kind of rather relatively remote region, um, developing connections in all kinds of ways to other parts of Southeast Asia, um, that are in some ways more, more proximal, more, um, significant than the relationship to the Republic of China in the 1920s and thirties. Um, and so some of these connections don't have very much to do with colonial powers at all. Um, because there is a long tradition of ethnic diversity in this part of China in Yunnan province. Yunnan remains the uh, single most ethnically diverse province in China um, with a variety of different peoples who are formally classified as minority peoples within China, um, even today. Many of those peoples have connections to other Southeast Asian peoples in terms of culture, language, economic networks, and this was the case in the early and mid-20th century as well. Um, And as Laura mentioned, um, at the same time, one of the things that we do see if we look at the history of medicine in this part of the world in the early 20th century, thinking about precursors to what happened during uh, the Second World War, uh, we do see uh, colonial governments making inroads and getting interested in this part of China. So we see physicians coming up from French Indochina establishing clinical outposts and medical uh, posts in a number of cities. We also see British physicians uh, moving in from uh, Burma, which is which it's called at the time, which is controlled by the British. We see uh, British physicians also coming in through what was called the Imperial Maritime Customs Service. Um, I don't wanna get too uh, far down a rabbit hole with the Imperial Maritime Customs Service. Um, If you've read the book, you have a sense um, of what it might've included, but it was essentially a bureaucratic structure set up largely by uh, Britain um, dealing with customs duties and tax duties after the opium wars. Um, But one of the tasks that the Customs Service took on was sending physicians to different parts of China um, to make medical reports. And so what that means is that for sources on the history of medicine in this area during the early 20th century, colonial medical reports become quite significant. We see through these reports, efforts to establish medical infrastructures in Yunnan province in different ways that typically involve things like establishing generic vaccination against smallpox, along with other kinds of medical infrastructure, building hospitals, offering medical services, that kind of thing. Um, And medicine was important in this particular region, uh, because of long standing concerns by uh, local Chinese people, um, as much as anyone else, about the unhealthy qualities of the environment in Yunnan and in southern China, more generally, Um, there were uh, concerns essentially that uh, things like fevers, what we now know as malaria, but which at the time locally would have been known as uh, um, that uh, uh, that there were unhealthy areas in Yunnan, that it was an area conducive to disease. This was a very long standing, quite general conception, as I've said about South China in the late imperial imperial time. Um, And in Yunnan in particular, there were lots of concerns about disease that lasted into the 20th century, um, into uh, the period when we see this move to the Southwest in the 1930s. Of course, at, by that point, these concerns, these fears were couched in terms of Western biomedicine as much as John or Chinese medical terms for disease. Um, so in 1937, when we see researchers and students and administrators moving to Southwest China, we see them being concerned about things like trachoma, Um, typhoid fever, cholera, plague, smallpox, all of these things which were considered to be endemic to Yunnan in particular because of its subtropical environment. Um, And so because of that, we see all kinds of concerns with disease. Um, So I've talked a bit about geography and how that shapes kind of political connections. And I've talked a bit about the various politics of the region. Um, I don't want to go on for for terribly long, so maybe I'll pause there. (laughs)
1: Yeah, no. This is this is really fascinating and very very important um, because it's showing us how this idiosyncratic um, decision um, of China under the nationalist um, government under Ch- Shanghai Shek to go to this southwest and have, um, province and how province and how the conditions on the ground there, the geography, the particular health needs, um, and the history of other imperial um, powers, France, the UK, League of Nations, having this distinctive access to this area or all coming together in this area actually shaped the, uh, the form of response that the national government took because of this weird fact that the National Epidemic Prevention Board happened to be there. So folks in this national uh, um, this national bureau were having to also deal with the situations right outside their door, which were not sort of, for example, in Shanghai or something like that. They were in uh, Kunming. Um, so it's a, it's a remarkable story um, that takes us through sort of 1930s or so. and um, war is really a central context for the entire the entire book. And so here I'm actually going to hand it over to Harrison for his group's question. All right. Hi, Dr. Rosen. So our group, uh, we were sort of thinking, as Dr. Stark was mentioning, uh, about sort of war and how that contextualized uh, all sort of mass immunization campaigns in 20th century China. So our question is just that you know one central theme of mass vaccination is that the primary object setting in which China's immunization campaigns were to be interpreted by citizens was one of war, whether that's against the Japanese, the nationalists, or the Americans. Could you elaborate on how these forms of militarized rhetoric and rationale have evolved over time and under China's different governing regimes?
0: Sure. Um, I think you're absolutely right to point to that as kind of a theme of the book, even though I didn't really think about it. At the time when I was writing, it certainly emerged as as a theme uh, over time, the way in which, and I guess I would start by noting the ways in which vaccines emerge as kind of a a strategy for the national state during the war. So um, this is at a period when the national state has moved to not Kunming, but the city of Chongqing. Um, And so the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau is in Yunnan uh, in Kunming. uh, So about an hour away from the temporary wartime capital of of the government. And so the, the National Health Administration Um, that's kind of calling the shots for a variety of public health interventions is based in Chongqing. Um, And they're basically deciding that vaccines are one really good way to protect um, the citizens in southwest China and all of those who are still under nationalist control. Vaccines provide a means of uh, protecting uh, the Chinese people from all kinds of military incursions. Um, so this is at a time when there are concerns about biological and chemical warfare from Japan, which, as you'll know if you're familiar with the stories of Unit 731, are legitimate concerns for people in China to have at the time. Um, there, So this is reflected in documents uh, that I looked at from the wartime period, uh, written by people who were involved in the Nationalist Administration. Um, if you run searches for the various terms for vaccines, Um, then you find uh, articles about how one can use vaccines to protect against biological warfare. Um, And more generally, you see vaccines being used in part because they're something that I think falls between the question of behavior and infrastructure in a really interesting and potentially useful way. So this is something that Laura mentioned at the beginning of the session, this kind of question of kind of where you cite vaccines and immunizations. And For the national state, one appeal of vaccines is that they're portable. Um, So unlike a sewer system uh, that you might implement in the regional capital or the temporary wartime capital of Chongqing, if you give soldiers vaccinations, you can then send them to various places and they will still be uh, quite useful strategically. Um, Likewise, vaccines are portable and that means that Outside groups like the League of Nations can donate vaccines from different places, um, and that is an easy and visible way to provide medical aid.
1: Yeah, this is great. So one of the things that you show in sort of chapters um, two and three in particular is how what what um, turned into something like a medical, a reasonably strong medical infrastructure um, in this vast um, mountainous geography in the, in the Southwest was um, because there was not one imperial power sort of pressing down sort of a, a, a biopolitical um, apparatus, but instead that there was competition among different colonial powers, France, the UK, um, the League of Nations, as well as the local warlords, um, given that there was not quite strong um, consolidation of nationalist power quite yet until, until sort of the 1930s. Um, and you also write uh, really well about the um, how generic methods were were known, were practiced in the area before sort of the 1930s um, because of these um, other influences and connections and uh, sort of using the language from Jim Secord and and other scholars of circulation and how materials circulate in history of science and medicine. Um, And that when the sort of the local populations Uh, chose not to get uh, vaccinated, um, they they were engaging in what you call a calculation of risk. And so getting a vaccination was a a statement about support for a particular governing regime. And and also to understand that there were other methods, um, for example, for inoculation, for example, with smallpox um, inoculation that were legitimate and and were also present and practiced at the time. So on on this um, really important story of how it wasn't a a seamless um, introduction of generic methods, not because of any sort of um, wrongheaded uh, thinking, but because uh, the local population understood it as first a political decision, and also a decision in which there was another viable alternative in many cases, which was some other form of inoculation. So, sort of picking up this um, this theme of, of traditional health practices, I'm going to hand it over to Amanda. Hi, hello. Um, so, my art group's question was that a big part of the book focused on the vaccination practices
0: in China and how the government provided the Chinese population with newer health methods. Um, and then, although these some of these health methods were implemented, we were wondering. Um, is the Chinese government still trying to implement these more health methods in other rural areas um, or has have they become lost causes? And if so, how does this help to define the biopolitical um, environment of China right now? Yeah, that's a really wonderful question. And I think it's something that entails thinking about contemporary China and maybe how the recent past has also influenced some of these issues Um, So in terms of thinking about, for example, differences between what we might consider Western biomedicine and uh, Chinese medical traditions that were present uh, in different ways before the introduction of maybe things like generic vaccination a long time ago, Um, one thing to note about the PRC government is the way in which it early on established a policy of combining Uh, Chinese and Western medicine, right? This is one of the health policies that it starts promulgating from uh, about 1950 going forward. Um, And so what that means is that technically for a long time in the early PRC, there is a formal policy that um, doctors of Western medicine learn from those uh, who practice Chinese medicine and vice versa now this is a very very general policy and it works out in very different ways in specific local communities um, in different ways Um, but uh the in general it's kind of thought that the policy's aim at least was to get practitioners of chinese medicine to learn a bit more western uh biomedicine rather than the other way around um but whatever the original intent was um, I think one thing that we can see is that the result has been a really robust um, kind of survival of and maintenance of uh, really rich medical pluralism in China today. Um, now, what that looks like in rural as opposed to urban areas probably escapes the the scope of our, of our conversation um, today. But I think one thing that's probably, um, one thing that I think is interesting about this question is the way in which it raises issues of kind of what medical infrastructures look like today um, in China, in the countryside, as opposed to cities. and There are lots of kind of questions about the extent to which um, rural health infrastructure um, started to experience problems in the 1980s after the so-called socialist period uh, is thought to have come to an end in 1978. So one narrative that I think is sort of generally um kind of assumed today but which really needs a lot more research um, is the idea that in the 1980s and 90s we maybe see erosions and the kinds of securities and protections uh, offered in terms of public health to more rural areas now whether that maps on to um, use of chinese medical traditions or kind of other forms of medical traditions it's hard to say and i'm really reluctant to say that those are actually older medical traditions, because I think if there's one thing that uh, Chinese medical history has really shown, um, it's that Chinese medicine and Chinese medical traditions have evolved in all kinds of ways over the course of the 20th century. So um, I, I wouldn't want to kind of say that all of that is kind of the old style of medicine as opposed to Western biomedicine being a kind of new style. I don't think that's a particularly kind of helpful dichotomy, but I do think, and I say that in part because Chinese medicine also has A really wide diversity of traditions and um, kind of texts and approaches so it's really hard to generalize so I'm sorry that probably sounds like I'm just weaseling my way out of the question but um, I think it's an important one that is going to entail continued research um, from anthropologists and sociologists as well as historians
1: one of the things we most admired about the book was how it's not a progressivist story in which you have sort of um, sort of a uh, Whiggish triumphant um, story of the, the dominance of a, a quote unquote bio Western uh, uh, biomedical paradigm, um, but showing how um, sort of thinking with uh, Ruth Fragowski's idea of hygienic modernity, how there is um, this quite seamless. Um, uh, connection or not so much a connection but there was an, un- an unproblematic mostly um layering of the the different um entirely legitimate health practices with these different sorts of imperial practices that were coming in. And also that um, the region had already helped to shape with its communication and circulation of materials and ideas um, over over centuries. Um, So building on this idea and um, what you show in sort of the later chapters of how um, China under the communist party regime was then And plugged into this new organization, the World Health Organization, after World War II, and the influence that China had in, for example, um, shaping, though not in its presence, but in the ideology and the ideas that it sent along, the very, very important Alma-Ada Declaration, for example. So thinking about um, the role of China um, more uh, internationally as a producer of ideas and health infrastructures. I'm going to hand it over to Troy for Troy's group's question. It looks like Troy is having some technical issues. So we're actually going to move, move forward on that um, because you had also mentioned uh, unit 731 mm-hmm. um, and this was um, sort of the the, the unit of uh, Japanese military that you uh, talk about in the book, which gave um, legitimate concerns of um, biological warfare um, during the Nationalist Party time, and then after the um, the fall of the Nationalist Party and um, bringing in the communist um, uh, the communist regime, starting in the late 1940s, there were also concerns about um, American. Um, biological warfare and these, this rhetoric um, and they also the legitimate um, concerns and and accusations were also used to encourage people to get vaccinated. So it was a heroic patriotic duty to get vaccinated because um, either the Japanese or the Americans were uh, propagating biological warfare. For example, um, poisoning rivers, dropping dropping. Um, Uh, from aerosol uh, materials out of airplanes um, to make Chinese citizens sick. So on this note, um, I would love to have Lola, um, I'm sorry, Um, I am going to ask Mackenzie. I got myself out of word. Mackenzie, I'd like you to hop in with your question.
0: So mass vaccination is both a health effort and a
2: political effort. Based on the cover image, which features a man with his sleeves rolled up awaiting vaccination, how has anti-American vaccination propaganda influenced diplomatic relations
0: between China and the U.S. in the early 20th century and today? Thank you for that. So, yeah, how does anti-American propaganda matter? And I think that it's probably worth pointing out at this point that, as you may have noticed from seeing the image in one of the figures inside the book, uh, the cover image actually cuts off the original, um, poster, um, with quite a significant part. So I actually, um, I can put a link, uh, in the chat to what the original poster looks like, um, just to refresh your memories. Um, but, you know, as, as you say, the cover image shows this, um, extremely, uh, macho, uh, guy who's getting a vaccine followed by a range of people who um, kind of cover an interestingly wide demographic range, getting getting vaccines, um, and in the original poster, which uh, the Landsberger collection uh, of Chinese posters kindly let me uh, use uh, for the cover of the book, the bottom part of that image uh, features um, a stereotypical American capitalist, uh, complete with um, with uh, pince-nez, with tiny glasses, um, kind of hover. Uh, cowering in fear um from the glare of this um fierce uh chinese guy about to get a vaccine Uh, and he's kind of cowering next to a germ bomb so um and of course the the caption is saying everyone should get vaccinated to defeat um american bacteriological warfare Um, and so anti-american propaganda you know in China, we don't necessarily see strong anti-American sentiments, uh, before this period, before the early 1950s, of course, before 1949, um, the nationalist party and government had been allies of the U.S. the U S had played a role in, uh, the war against Japan there in different ways. Um, and this was even though, of course, at the time in the United States, um, there were all kinds of, um, Prejudices and stigmas of uh, people from with of East Asian descent, um, associating them with disease in all kinds of ways. Um, Nayan Shah uh, has a really excellent book on this that you may have come across, uh, looking at fear and contagion in Californian uh, Chinatowns. But anyway, um, to get back to this question of anti-American propaganda, certainly in the Korean War, this marks a really important turning point, in part because of the ways in which the patriotic hygiene campaign that comes out of the Korean War Um, becomes a rubric under which all kinds of uh, sanitation and hygienic work are conducted. Um, And that comes out of this period um, of the Korean War, known in Chinese as the War to Resist America and Aid Korea. That's the literal translation of that war's formal name in in Chinese. Um, So we see kind of ways in which um, the fact that the U.S. is potentially conducting biological warfare that gets linked to the bigger construction of the US as a capitalist enemy in all kinds of ways. Um, But that, I think that story, that isn't necessarily the end of the story of the very unusual kind of relationship between China and the United States, because of course, um, that animosity doesn't necessarily last, at least not in terms of Um, how we see medicine being discussed. Um, And so you might contrast it with what happens in the early 1970s when the US and China experience rapprochement, uh, right? Um, It's this period when, um, as relations between China and the US are becoming closer, um, we see delegations of uh, medics and um, scientists coming from the US to China um, on all kinds of study tours um, and so here is maybe another kind of twist in in, in the story. But I'll stop there.
2: The
1: um... The way in which you um, work with and also problematize the conventional Cold War framing um, and instead sort of take, take China in its, um, as its, in its own terms and have it, its own um, set of relationships um, rather than simply a figure in this story of the, of the United States and the USSR, um, I think is really, really important and really nicely done. So building on this, um, I'd love to have Lola chime in with her question.
2: Thank you. Um, Our group had a question about concerning stigma. So concerning the vast tensions between the capitalist and communist countries during the Cold War, along with the numerous forms of propaganda created to distance themselves from these countries, do you believe that the international stigmatization of China was an influential factor in compelling the the World Health Organization to believe the health reports and policies presented by China at this time? And if so, do you believe that this stigma also played a role in accepting or rejecting health reports and research from other competing countries?
0: Thank you. That's such a fascinating and complex question. Um, And I think it's a really important one. Um, And there's a lot to unpack, I think, in terms of, first of all, thinking about these Cold War dichotomies and binaries um, and the role that international organizations like the World Health Organization play. Um, So for starters, let's think first about the treatment of China by the WHO and how we see kind of uh, stigmatization emerging there or particular attitudes to China emerging. This was something that um, I paid some attention to as I was looking at the reports of representatives from the WHO who uh, in some cases went to China, but in other cases couldn't actually go to China um, because of course the PRC wasn't a member of the WHO until uh, the early 1970s. Um, and so we have accounts from WHO officials of the various efforts that they made to try and figure out what was happening in terms of public health in China um, at, during the 1960s and 70s. Um, and throughout, you do kind of get a sense of the attitudes um, that I think can be described as stigmatization on the part of WHO officials towards China A lot of it, I think, is frustration um, at the fact that the PRC is quite careful about um, and refuses to let in um, representatives from the WHO until uh, the end of the 1970s. That causes a lot of frustration, Um, but there are also all kinds of questions and assumptions being made, um, I think, about um, the possibility of of, um, public health working or not working. And this is partly why I think um, those delegations that I mentioned um, that start happening in the early 1970s, um, those reports that start circulating in the West as a result of firsthand observations and uh, other kinds of reports, those things attract attention because they are so positive um, about the state of public health in China. Um, and that is corroborated by things like surveys of people who are coming across the border, um, in Hong Kong and other sites who don't have faces pockmarked, uh, with smallpox, uh, which would be kind of an indication of a certain level of epidemic disease there. Um, so in other words, we see kind of efforts to, uh, evaluate what's going on and questions about kind of, um, in the sense that China is an unknown space. Um, which is not unique to health, I think, but is something that is felt with a couple of different realms of um, political observation or efforts to understand um, what's happening in China. But there are, I think, other questions to be asked about. Um, you know, China's place is in and one of international politics, as you mentioned. It's in a Cold War context. Um, China is in many ways um, unusual, in part because it was an ally of the Soviet Union until the end of the 1950s, after which there's a Sino-Soviet split that mean that China and the Soviet Union aren't exactly allies. And in fact, they they have quite a contentious relationship um, at various points. Um, But they're still in some key ways uh, a part of the non-aligned world, as it was called then, um, sometimes the developing world. Uh, And so we see them kind of making efforts to take a leading role in the non-aligned world in part through medical diplomacy. Um, but we also see, um, I think there are also interesting questions to be asked about um, the particular role that the WHO plays in its own interventions into these, um, into these nations, into these places. And I, I have one last thing to say and then I'll um, hand back over, which is just that I've had students actually look at the oral histories of WHO workers um, who worked on the smallpox eradication program in India uh, and in other non-aligned states. Um, And I think there you do see all kinds of um, the ways in which they talk about the people that they're vaccinating. I think you can see um, assumptions being made about the people that are being vaccinated in ways that do look a lot like, like stigma. But I'll I'll stop there. I've gone on for a bit too long.
1: This is really fascinating. So the book it, book um, starts by showing us how the um, the context of the Japanese um, occupation of China in the 30s brought the National Epidemic Prevention Board to Yunnan, and then. Um, into this um, particular location with a particular configuration of public health and and public health practices already in place that then somewhat got um, almost uh, not exactly standardized but taken to be sort of a precedent for the return back to the capital areas after after the war. um, And soon thereafter, the communist um, regime coming in following the the Nationalist Party um, and Chiang Kai-shek's uh, flee to Taiwan. And so then it's, it's in this um, communist party period in which um, China is, is then in a particular way plugging into these international health communities with the WHO sort of having influence, although not, um, not strong membership and um, also having its practices uh, spread to other non-aligned countries. And so on the um, sort of the the effects and the compare and contrast with other non-aligned countries, I'm gonna hand it over to Troy now, now that he has returned.
2: Yeah, sorry about my uh, connection issues. Um, So, Dr. Brazelton, in your book, uh, you discuss the export of Chinese public health practices uh, to global South nations, particularly in Africa. Um, And one of your main arguments is that the successes um, of these health interventions domestically in China largely depended on the 20th century history, um, including the Japanese invasion, the retreat of metal, medical intellectuals to the hinterlands, the civil war and other events very unique to China. Uh, so we were wondering how you would characterize the application of Chinese public health practices in the global south um, with very distinct histories and cultures. Were Chinese health uh, public health practices like the barefoot doctor model and mass immunization as successful in these foreign contexts um, that did not experience the same uh, defining historical episodes.
0: That is a really brilliant question, um, and I think it's um, really telling that um, you're all asking such wonderful questions. It's certainly testament to um, to your teacher, um, but I think that. Yeah, I think, of course, the answer will necessarily depend on the particular state that you're looking at. And it might be instructive here to think about one case study, which is that of Tanzania. In some ways, it's quite exceptional because it was an area of particularly intensive intervention from China. Um, But uh, the scholar Alicia Altorfer-Ong has done a lot of work on this particular case study. And I think I'm reluctant to say that these interventions were successful or not in a kind of binary way. I think at the time they were presented as being, uh, really important and really helpful, but that said something that I've observed as part of a bigger project that I'm on, uh, called connecting three worlds, which is all about looking at the history of medicine in, um, the Western world, the socialist, uh, world and the so-called third world. Um, one of the things that's come out of our conversations in that context is the way in which um, people in places like Tanzania or other post-colonial states in Africa, in particular, uh, one thing that you see administrators doing is um, working very strategically and uh, intelligently to form strategic alliances that adopt things that are useful from a variety of different partners. So. In the case of uh, Tanzania, we see the barefoot doctor model, so this model of a paraprofessional group of health workers um, being adopted and being promoted by Julius Nire, uh, in part because it is seen as particularly suitable for the context of the new Tanzanian state. Now, along with that goes rhetoric from China about the ways in which it's offering medical aid, not as an imperialist outsider, but as um uh kind of uh an equal from one equal to another um so i don't want to imply that it's kind of divorced from a greater political context um but i think we see kind of selective adaptation uh, and appropriation to the specific context uh in in most cases but again this is another area where i think there's so much work uh to be done and i have colleagues who are beginning to work on uh the question of uh relationships between china and african states especially in the history of medicine Um, But I'm really hoping that more people um, take it up because I think it's a really important area to to research.
1: The project you mentioned, it's called um, Connecting Three Worlds. Is that it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, it sounds like a, um, a great initiative, really interesting and eager to learn more about that. And um, one of the books, the things the book shows is um, also the specific um, sort of tracking and accounting practices that ultimately um, under an authoritarian um, government do make these practices um, more effective because many of them were so um, also so coercive. Um, And uh, we found it interesting to also think about, uh, for example, over the past few days, the the new travel opening um, for particular people if they have their certification of um, of vaccination uh, in order to be able to travel outside of the United States, for example. And um, having a certification to travel was um, one of the practices that the the nationalist government had used in the 1930s, um, given the enormous um, movement of soldiers, of refugees, of workers in in Yunnan. And then you also show under um, the Communist Party, this shift from, in the context of vaccination, uh, not tracking so much uh, vaccine and where the vaccine went, but instead tracking individuals, and whether uh, an individual got vaccinated. So this shift from tracking the material to tracking the bodies, and along with information about vaccination, things like, uh, like gender, um, age, et cetera, et cetera. And then this, these were then enrolled in projects of other forms of um, sort of dispossession and discrimination, particularly on the dividing line of rural and urban um, that allowed access to resources. Um, And of course, the rural rural urban divide um, also mapped onto ethnic divides in China as well. So thinking about the uh, practices that made vaccination um, system so remarkably successful in China, um, also had to do with these very strong biopolitical practices of tracking and record keeping, um, including um, keeping track of households uh, and individuals over the vaccine The vaccine itself. Um, at the same time, there are um, a lot of practices that um, have been widely celebrated and continue to be sort of uh, celebrated and, and brought up as uh, in the interest of a more... Um, basic and capacious and um, effective, preventative and primary care coming out of China. And models like the Barefoot Doctor um, have been really um, written about and investigated quite a bit. And so building on this, I um, wanted to ask Naya to chime in with her group's question.
2: Hi, I just wanted to say again, thank you so much for coming to speak with us. I'm learning quite a bit more based on what I've already heard about or what I read in the book, obviously. And so my group's question is the concept of barefoot doctors who cared for patients in the rural towns really fascinated us as we were reading chapter seven, leading us to wonder if you think there are any people currently working in the medical field who are not exactly doctors in the traditional sense, but are comparable to the barefoot doctors discussed. If so, who, and do you think they would threaten the relationship between the discipline of medicine and the doctor profession?
0: And so just to check, this is for contemporary China today. Um, Is that right, or?
2: Well, I guess we were just wondering in terms of like COVID-19, I guess is where this question um, stemmed from. So in contemporary China in the U.S. um...
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. So um, I can speak in some ways um to the situation in China a little bit more clearly than in the U.S. just because um, I hear a bit about what's going on in the U.S. Um, but um, it's filtered through all kinds of, uh, of, of different lenses. So uh, to think about China and the situation at the moment, especially with COVID-19, um, I think there aren't necessarily uh, analogs to the barefoot doctors operating today. Um, I think that that was a system that was set up during the Cultural Revolution that was kind of particular to the socialist state. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I think one of the stories that is actually yet to be told in full detail is how the 1980s and 1990s and the period of economic reform and opening up as it's called in China, the move away from socialism changes healthcare and especially rural healthcare um, quite dramatically. And in many ways, the social structures that are in place to support rural healthcare um, uh, crumble during those decades. Um, So I think we don't necessarily see um, barefoot doctors per se in the contemporary world. Um, I think the view from outside, from places like the US and Europe would probably see some analog in practitioners of Chinese medicine um, who like the barefoot doctors today Operate in a world where Chinese and Western biomedicine um, aren't necessarily so easily disentangled. Um, and certainly, one thing that we've seen is the publication very quickly of protocols um, within Chinese medicine um, as it's been systematized in the contemporary world to treat COVID 19. Um, and I saw this even within kind of social media groups that I'm a part of, people talking about kind of different ways in which practitioners of Chinese medicine might treat uh, COVID-19, might prevent uh, COVID-19 in different ways. Um, whether or not they destabilize the relationships between um, what we might consider more conventional practitioners of Western biomedicine, bi- uh, and people in, in China, um, I don't think we necessarily see COVID-19 sparking those kinds of destabilization, simply because there is this really robust Uh, kind of medical uh, sphere and medical pluralism in China today. But I think the question becomes more interesting if you think about it from the perspective of US and European observers. Um, So for example, the WHO, there was some controversy over um, whether or not the WHO would endorse Chinese treatments for COVID-19 or Chinese medicine treatments for COVID-19. And then I'm not entirely clear on the details, but I think there were differing websites published in Chinese as opposed to Western languages. Um, So there were all kinds of controversies that emerged around whether or not international organizations like the WHO might lend their support to uh, non-Western biomedical approaches to, to the disease. And I think that's maybe where you see interesting questions emerging Um, And maybe I'll I'll pause there because I could go on for so much longer, (laughs) Um, but it's a really important question.
1: Yeah, this is fantastic. And thinking about medical pluralism. And you also mentioned um, that you you feel like one of the most exciting places to be um, thinking about uh, research and research questions in terms of China and medicine now is sort of the 1980s moment and um, the economic reform. So that kind of leads me, and I imagine other people have this question as well, leads me to wonder what's next for you. Uh, Well, that's really a
0: question that COVID-19 has thrown into all kinds of disarray um, because, of course, now the question of traveling to go to archives um, in different places is really a contentious one. But one question that has emerged for me um, from this book, it isn't necessarily so closely related to the 1980s, I'm afraid, uh, but it is related to some of the questions of geography that we started the conversation with. Um, and the ways in which Yunnan, um, because it was very difficult to get to, um, became a unique place in terms of its epidemiological character and medical character. And that, in one kind of phrase that I came across while I was doing the research was the notion that Yunnan was kind of a province that... Um, was really transformed by aviation, by the development of new forms of transportation. And something that I kept thinking about as I was doing the research was the ways in which new forms of travel changed uh, medical uh, work and public health. So vaccines traveled on planes, um, physicians traveled on planes um, and used different forms of transport in interesting ways. And so I've been thinking more and more about uh, technologies of transportation, Um, and especially aviation and how it emerged in 20th century China, Um, and specifically the role that it plays in the history of science and medicine. So how do scientific and medical disciplines change as a result of new uh, technologies of transportation um, becoming more widespread and becoming established in China? So it's still a question perhaps of infrastructure and of technology, but from a slightly
1: different perspective. That's unbelievably interesting because I feel like these sorts of transportation shifts